Welcome back to the Forge by Trust podcast. I'm your host, Robert Dreek. This episode today is dedicated to Memorial Day 2022. It is also the third in a three-part series entitled My Enemy, My Friend, with two very dear close friends, Jack Barsky, former KGB deep undercover officer, and Dan Hoffman, retired senior clandestine services officer for the CIA. This special episode is all about understanding the geopolitical challenges that we face around the world and our unique three-person optic on it based on our background, myself as a counterintelligence agent for the FBI, Jax from a deep undercover KGB operative, and Dan from a clandestine services officer who served in multiple high-risk areas around the world. One of the things that we do in this episode is draw the parallel between Zelensky, the president of Ukraine, and Ronald Reagan in their ability to inspire nations. So as such, I'm going to read a few of the most notable lines that Ronald Reagan spoke in recognition of Memorial Day during his time in office as our president. His impassioned speeches spoke of Americans winning their freedom with the sacrifices and the blood of the martyrs who died defending the nation. Reagan heaped praise on the families of martyrs and veterans. Here are some of the most memorable quotes by Ronald Reagan. May 26, 1983. I don't have to tell you how fragile this precious gift of freedom is. Every time we hear, watch, or read the news, we are reminded that liberty is a rare commodity in this world. Arlington National Cemetery, May 31st, 1982. The United States and the freedom for which it stands, the freedom for which they died, must endure and prosper. Their lives remind us that freedom is not bought cheaply. It has a cost. It imposes a burden. And just as they whom we commemorate were willing to sacrifice, so too must we, in a less final, less heroic way, be willing to give of ourselves. May 25th, 1981. Today, the United States stands as a beacon of liberty and democratic strength before the community of nations. We are resolved to stand firm against those who would destroy the freedoms we cherish. We are determined to achieve an enduring peace a peace with liberty and with honor. This determination, this resolve, is the highest tribute we can pay to the many who have fallen in the service of our nation. Arlington National Cemetery, May 31st, 1982. Our goal is peace. We can gain that peace by strengthening our alliances, by speaking candidly about the dangers before us, and by assuring potential adversaries of our seriousness by actively pursuing every chance of honest and fruitful negotiation. May 26, 1983. We owe this freedom of choice and action to those men and women in uniform who have served this nation and its interests in time of need. In particular, we are forever indebted to those who have given their lives that we might be free. I hope you all found those words inspiring and that you'll sit back, relax, reflect on them, as well as listen in to this great episode between myself, Jack, and Dan as we explain the challenges of the world around us today. Welcome to an exciting special episode of the Forged by Trust podcast. We're going to cover three hot topics in the world, and that is the world of intelligence, 
the geopolitical challenges around the world, as well as hopefully we'll get a little Vladimir Putin in here as well, because from our three backgrounds, you're going to get a lot of different optics, but all centered on one crucial thing, and that is protect the national security of the United States and our NATO allies. And as always, if you could leave a review, leave a like on your favorite podcasting platform because likes and reviews get us the notice we need to get this great information out there so we can actually make a difference in the world. And as I always say, if we have at least one bit of information someone else could benefit from, shame on us for not getting it to us and that getting it to them, I should say. So with that, I'm going to do a little round robin here so we can kind of get brief introduction again if anyone's looking for a little more deeper dive on either uh, dan or jack please check out their podcast and with that jack why don't you give us a real brief introduction yourself and with that introduction give a little bit of your why and why you joined uh or were recruited by the kgb those years ago career this was never a plan of mine i mean you know the the whole idea of becoming a spy or working in an intelligence agency never crossed my mind. I was going to be a college professor. You know, my parents were teachers and that was natural for me. I liked teaching. But, you know, the KGB had other plans. They found me. You know, they were looking for, they were looking candidates for, you know, deep cover work. And uh, good candidates for deep cover work weren't that easy to find. So they came to me, recruited me. It took about 18 months before they made the offer. And uh, the reason I accepted the offer, and it was a, t- a tough decision, because you understand that when, when, you, when you go deep cover in another country, you lose your history, you lose your, you lose your parents, you lose your friends, you lose everything. You've got to start from scratch in another country with possibly a, another language and a, another culture. What really convinced me was a combination of adventurism. I've always been very adventurous and always wanted to, you know, explore places and go places. And the other one, the the most important one was I was convinced that there would be a communism would win the, the war of ideologies and eventually be established in the entire world. And I was going to be a hero by doing my part to accelerate that process. You know, and and Jack, you bring out so many things I'd love to explore more with. And the one that I I think you are the best expert on is the impact that propaganda has in someone's life because you were a result of that. I mean, you are a hardcore supporter of communism because you were going to save the world on that. And then that transformation started happening, as happens a lot with our the deep cover folks when they go abroad, they start getting exposed to truth, and and you know transparency will set you free because that yes. kind of seeing the rest of the world does that to you. With that, Dan, next please. Yeah, so my path to serving at CIA a little bit different. You know, I was very well aware as a kid growing up in Boston of a lot of the sacrifices my family had made. A lot of them had served in the military. My grandfather, my father's father, first one born in this country, he went to public schools, served in the Navy, and then he went to law school and opened up his own law practice, a family law practice in in Boston. He went from having nothing. His parents had nothing. His dad was, my great-grandfather was a photographer. My great-grandmother didn't work. But this was the freedom of opportunity we all enjoy in our country. And so I wanted to do my part and serve my country. And so I thought about my own path. At the time, the Cold War was raging and intelligence played a big part in that. And so that was my path. I decided to apply to CIA and was uh, thankful that I was 
granted an interview and then eventually was hired. For myself, very much like Dan, we're pretty close in age. I grew up when, you know, my one of my heroes was Ronald Reagan. And he was very inspirational for me in my life and service and service and service. I come from a family of service as well. My dad was a former Marine during Vietnam. And I wanted to be nothing but this great Navy pilot and astronaut because people will ask, you know, how do you wind up doing behavioral analysis? I failed at all the other things I wanted to do, but it was constantly service because I, I went in the Marine Corps after the Naval Academy. And literally, we had a recruiter from the FBI come to Paris Island where I was serving as a company commander and said, we think FBI um, Marines make great FBI agents. And I I had all these you know public service jobs I could go into in corporate America. And I just wanted to continue my service to my country. And I got yeah. assigned to New York and did the whole thing. Yeah, Jack. Sorry, finish up. No, no, go ahead. No, it's, uh, everyone so, hears so you my mentioned story Ronald anyway. Reagan, just to, that, that triggered something uh, in my mind that illustrates my transition. When I came here in the first few years, I, I, I operated here. Reagan was president, and I was convinced the guy was an idiot. And, <laughs> and now I think he, he's the best president we've had since the end of World War II. You know, it's funny thing about Reagan too. I love, I love studying people's behaviors. And one of the things, again, I love it when we're going to talk about political figures, kind of putting your politics aside so you can kind of look at the individual and things they do and look at their strengths. Reagan, one of Reagan's greatest strengths was his ability to forge trust using a lot of self-deprecating humor and a positive can-do attitude. I mean, he is just always positive, always making fun of himself. One of his greatest things he did both on stage during the first State of the Union address and at any everything, when he was first attacked by the Democrats for being too old for office, the first thing he did was start poking at his age. He validated the context of others. He didn't argue it. And he said, all right, next. And it went. Can you imagine today a politician agreeing with someone that's on the opposite side, it just doesn't happen. And I mean, so, do you remember the first debate with with Vice President Mondale, where he said, "I'm not going to take advantage of my opponent's youth," or something like that. <laughs> yes, and I'm he, not going to take advantage of my use in you know use and inexperience, or or hold it against them is what well, it was. Yeah, I mean, it was just a, as you said, you know, the way to do it. Now, I'll just tell you, taking that to today's world, when I talk about President Zelensky in Ukraine, as somebody who was. I've seen his films. You know, he was a, he was an excellent actor uh -huh. um, and he understands how to get up in front of people and deliver a pithy um, statement, you know, and, and rally his his country, men and women. If I were writing a, a dissertation or something, I would compare President Reagan and President Zelensky. There's a, a lot of, of worthy comparisons between the two. You know, Dan, you break a great point there. And often people will say that remember growing up under Reagan, they used to try to criticize him that, oh, he he's just an actor or he's he's good at communicating because he's an actor. And I always kind of countered that with the reversal. He's actually good at communicating because he's naturally good at communicating and became an actor because he's good at communicating. Right. Because you know, it's actually in his court because you can't fake who you are because both of you, especially, I mean, I did undercover work, but you know, Jack lived it. And, and Dan, you did a lot more than I did as well. It's exhausting psychologically to be mm -hmm. someone you're not for a period of time. And so our politicians, we're not, when they're on the campaign trail and they're trying to be someone they're not, they can't hold it for very long when they hit office. So you might see something on the campaign trail, but then when they're on office, if it's not who they are, it's going to completely fall apart. And so Reagan kept to that and Zelensky's doing the same thing. And my question for both of you on this one, is I always talk about 
this dichotomy of power and leadership and and power is about self and power and and controlling things and leadership is about being of service to others and as as patriots as the three of us are it's about serving our country and serving others and serving a greater good but i wonder in places like ukraine which i know they're not part of nato because of the corruption that's been in in place in the past and which is a power thing and I know people can't get in positions of leadership without exercising power because power is popularity, but then they make that transition. So Dan, in your assessment, and Jack too, when assessing Zelensky, would you see him, I'm now he's a uh, leadership guy. Do you think he's always been about leadership or is it about power? Or how do you think that dichotomy plays out and how will it play out more importantly for the future of Ukraine, you think, beyond this? So I'll start with this, that I think that neither the United States nor Russia assessed that he would be the leader he became. But it was always there inside him. He was waiting you know, for the crisis to happen, for him to demonstrate that he had these extraordinary leadership qualities. And he's playing to his strengths. If you look at his May 9 Victory Day speech, walking down the streets of Kiev, so different from Vladimir Putin's just kind of <laughs> stoic, wooden speech, looked very Soviet. But Zelensky, man of the people, calling out his courageous countrymen and women to keep up the fight against Russia. I mean, that's another thing he and President Reagan had in common. I mean, President <clears throat> Reagan built a consensus to counter the Soviet Union. You and I, remember, we all remember that yeah. there were many in our country who thought, essentially, we should appease the Soviet Union. And mm. President Reagan was more about peace through strength. Zelensky has rallied not just his own countrymen and women, but also the rest of NATO, the, you know, the West awakened us all from a post-Cold War slumber. Totally extraordinary. It was there inside him, but I don't even know that he knew it would actually be there when he needed it. And, and that's, to me, the most extraordinary part of this, one of the most extraordinary parts of this extraordinary fight that Ukraine is putting up is, is just the leadership you're seeing from President Zelensky. It is role model leadership we can all learn from. It's it's dumbfounding to witness and being a part of history and knowing what you're witnessing during it is, is I think, one of the greatest gifts we can have. And and to your point, Dan, he has rallied NATO to a point that I've never seen or think thought we'd experience. And Jack, you were on the other side of the wall for a long time. For you, how do you see NATO's reaction? Was that shocking to you as well? Absolutely. But particularly since, you know, I have some pretty strong ties to Germany, you know, was born and raised in Germany. The the doubt face by a socialist type government in, in Germany with regard to spending spending more on, on the military and, and becoming a more active member of NATO was like, wow, where did this come from? It, Zelensky will most likely go into history as one of the greatest in the last few years. I, I just wanted to talk about the, the, your juxtaposition, power versus uh, servitude. And learn that holds, that right. holds everywhere, actually. Yeah. Zelensky is serving his people by fundamentally, he, he, he is the biggest target that, uh, that Putin had and still has. So he, he, he might lose his life over this. And, and believe it or not, in communism, it was the same way. You cannot lead effectively by being dictatorial. And so the, the leadership styles in East Germany were just also just as different as they are in the United States. Yeah, it's it's dumbfounding to to witness. And Dan, I know you spent uh, times in the Baltics as well. Very familiar with it. I mean, you speak Estonian as well as Russian and numerous other languages. These recent moves that we've seen with Finland and Sweden looking to join uh, NATO is was that something you predicted would happen? I mean, what's your take on that? I never predicted. I 
I lived in Finland and never could have predicted that the Finns, I mean, they are independent and and stubbornly so. <laughs> I, I never could have imagined that they would have wanted to be a part of some other security apparatus. They want to take care of themselves. That's the way they've always been. You know, they fought the winter war and the continuation war, as they describe it during World War II on their own. They were the ones responsible for maintaining their own, in contrast to some of the other nations that fell under Soviet influence after the war. But this is what Vladimir Putin has done. And we're going to talk a lot about the geopolitical ramifications of Putin's war in Ukraine. One of those is, you know, for Vladimir Putin's regime security, being linked up to China is a good thing because he's going to counter the West and he's going to be aligned with a similarly oriented dictator. But for Russia's economic future, it's really all about Europe. And, and there's one gas pipeline to China. They're not going to make up everything they're going to lose in their exports of hydrocarbons to the West. And, and the mass of the Russian population, especially given the numbers that are leaving, they don't want this. But Putin will portray it down the road as, well, NATO is at our doorstep now. The Baltic states and, you know, the other four <clears throat> members of, of the other members, there's five NATO members, you know, on Russia's border. And this is kind of sealing Russia's tilt now to, to Asia. It's always been a kind of a, a battle inside Russia for their soul. Is it Europe or is it Asia? And uh, for Putin's regime security, it's got to be Asia. And it's only going to change once Putin is gone. But the West needs to be prepared, in my estimation at least, with an olive branch, that once Putin is gone and the fighting stops and Russia pays with money for all the damage they've caused and for the war crimes they've committed, that they can be welcomed back if their leadership is new and different and nothing like Vladimir Putin's. That's a long way from now. It's hard to imagine. But I don't I think the challenge for our for our country and, and for NATO members is not to seal off Russia permanently. I don't think we want to do that. I agree. I agree with that a hundred percent. If only for the fact that Russia has almost half the nuclear weapons on the planet. That's the reason we we have to respect them. Other than that, you know, she, she, the, Russia is number eleven or twelve, uh, at least in, in with regard to gross national product. So that's like smaller than Texas. Yeah, and, and, and so we're we're already going down the geopolitical road. So absolutely, I think a big question that everyone's been asking, and I think this group has the best answer for it, and that is so. Why did Putin do what he's doing? You know, like what what's happening? You know, what worked? What didn't work? What did he expect to happen? Why didn't it happen? And we can then kind of blend it into intelligence, successes and failures on both sides that kind of made that happen. That is where our, our bailiwick is. So, Dan, I'll start with you on the. All right. So why did Putin do what he's doing? Is he at battle with Ukraine or is he at battle with something else? So let's start with that. Why is Ukraine an existential threat to Russia? Why does Putin say that it doesn't matter that, that Finland and Sweden are going to join NATO? Well, the reason why he said that is because he can't do anything to stop it. But <laughs> Ukraine, you know, on Russia's border with a sizable Russian-speaking population, Putin cannot let Ukraine become a Western-oriented democracy. Ukraine wants to join NATO and the European Union and that's what threatens Putin the most. He knows NATO's a defensive alliance. He knows that Ukraine had no potential to join NATO in the near term. There are too many countries that would have voted against it. But he cannot allow you know, Ukraine for democracy to flourish because those ideas, liberty and freedom, the things we hold near and dear to our, our hearts, the things that are enshrined in the Constitution and Bill of Rights, that's what threatens Putin's regime security the most. And so he had to do away with Ukraine as a nation state. And it was such an existential threat that he launched this war. Now, What's fascinating to me is he made a massive intelligence failure. He failed to 
to accurately to assess the capacity and the will of Ukraine to fight, as well as their leader, Zelensky. But you know something? We did the same thing. You know, I'm writing about this in an op-ed that will be out this week, but seminal moment of this conflict was when we offered Zelensky a plane to evacuate him. And he said, no, I don't need a plane. I need ammunition. The fight is here. That sounds a lot to like Ronald Reagan, Winston Churchill, the greatest leaders. Zelensky knows how to deliver a pithy statement. That was his mission statement. The fight is here and I am here to fight. And God bless him. But we made the same mistake Vladimir Putin did. And imagine if he had taken that flight out. Counterfactual history. Maybe the war is over. Ukraine loses and we face all of those threats from Vladimir Putin now having taken over Ukraine, installed a puppet government, which was his expectation to celebrate May 9 Victory Day with some puppet government, you know, serving at his beck and call in Kiev. And I, I feel pretty sure that there's a red team going on in the United States about how we got it wrong. But Russia doesn't have oversight. And the corruption is massive. This is the Potemkin village of the Russian military, where they supposedly take money to go buy stuff that they need. But nope, they go, they go buy palatial estates on the Black Sea instead or pocket the money. And that's what we're seeing, a hollowed out force in Russia. And it's much to the surprise of our own intel community. But I'm sure it's surprising Vladimir Putin in a not so positive way. Yeah. Yeah, go ahead, Jack. When you, you mentioned corruption, I have a friend who was FSB. He worked in the investigative division that was investigating bank fraud. And he didn't want to participate in the corruption. There was money changing hands everywhere. And eventually, because he was an, an outsider, he had to run. And that's how he wound up, wound up in the United States. Russia is a through and through corrupt country. Yeah. When I worked in New York and did counterintelligence in New York against the Russians, people would often ask me about Russian organized crime and is, does it work like La Costa Nostra, like the Italians? And I go, no, it's actually just everyone. It's literally everyone. I mean, we used to watch kind of talking about how insider this whole organization is. Lavrov, the current minister of foreign affairs for Russia, was the ambassador to UN when I was there. He's been in there a long time. And I remember anytime they had a senior level officer come in, whether it's SVR or GRU or anything else, they had their thirds. They had to spend so much money because everyone was on the take in order to make things happen because their budget for doing everything was so low that they actually had to skim money from everything else. I remember when they were doing a new renovation of the Russian residential complex, the big spy place in Riverdale, New York. It was hilarious listening in on all on all the calls that they were skimming from all the construction workers. I mean, it, they were just stealing left and right. And so there was organized crime. Everyone's organized crime. It is just the way they did business. It was it was unbelievable. And that kind of brings us to it, what was shocking to me too is one you have Russia's and Putin's intelligence failure, whether they weren't collecting it or afraid to tell the boss it or the boss wasn't hearing what they're telling them. And likewise on our side, it was kind of shocking to me that we got and, and and Dan the three of us, you know, we predicted something a little bit different at the beginning too. I think. Mm-hmm with our intelligence like why don't we have better intelligence what is happening any ideas on that I, i'll just tell you from my experience i mean there's not you and i have talked about this how there's nothing certain in life some people like to say death and taxes you know i'll <laughs> refine that and say that i think the three of us are going to make it out of this podcast alive and um <laughs> we're probably going to pay taxes but hey you never know how that's going to go i never but know I've jack the only thing that's certain to me is love. Like, I know I love my wife and kids. I'm 100% certain about that. The intel business, 
No, we're never certain. I mean, there's people involved. You know, when we were hunting down bin Laden, I was serving in our headquarters at the time. And it was frustrating for, for you know, our elected leaders because we couldn't say for sure that bin Laden was actually in Abbottabad. And that's just the way it is. You can only get so far with it. But this, this isn't going to be looked upon as a colossal failure because it's turned out, okay, Zelensky declined the ride out. Yeah. It would have been considered a colossal failure had he taken the ride out, although we might not have known about it because if Ukraine had collapsed, if he left and Ukraine collapsed, we would have said, well, we were right. Yeah. So we would have precipitated the very intel failure that we were assessing. I mean, I know that's a bit hall of mirror, you know, mirrors, complicated stuff. But at the end of the day, we know now full transparency. We've had director DNI of Real Haynes has testified on this that we didn't get it right. And so we need to look at our collection and our analysis and see, like, where did we get it wrong? I think we probably overestimated Russia's capacity based on their relatively successful performances in Chechnya and in Georgia and in Syria. We underestimated the Ukrainians, but we shouldn't have because we've been training them since Russia illegally annexed Crimea and invaded the Donbass. So there's a lot of introspection to be done on our side, you know, and that's it's not going to happen in Russia. You know, but the way they do it is they arrest the guy responsible. So the, the FSB officer, Sergei Besed, the head of the Fifth Service, he's arrested. And the intelligence collection now for Ukraine has been turned over to Russia's military intelligence, the GRU. Yeah, that's my how voice. Putin does it. For us, we just say, hey, red team it, lessons learned, let's do better. Yeah, I found it really, really fascinating. Uh, I was at a briefing not, not too long ago, about two weeks ago now, and there's a, a former congressman that was there that used to be on the Intel Committee, and he gave a fascinating briefing that made so much sense, which actually could explain, again, I'm an armchair quarterback because I don't know on the inside, but it could explain some of the Intel failure. It might not necessarily necessarily been a failure. They're just looking at the wrong things, you know, maybe through a, a bit of a funnel. And that is, when you look at Russia's technology that they deployed, their ships, their tanks, their missiles, everything they have is extremely high tech, like the Moskva. The Moskva was an extremely high tech cruiser. What he was saying was the biggest challenge that they're having is no one's trained. And so when you don't have training and you don't know how to shoot the guns you have and the bullets you have, that's a problem. There's a, there's an, another comment I'd like to make, and that has to do with the fact that we collectively ignore history. So I was on the mm -hmm. wrong side of the equation, too, like as to, you know, who would win. But then a friend of mine pointed out the starvation campaign that Stalin undertook in 1932 and 1933 because he, he, he wanted to collectivize the farmers. And Ukraine, as we know, has been called the breadbasket of Europe. There are lots of farmers and wealthy farmers, and they resisted. And so what he did, he, he had the KGB take... Uh, uh, confiscate over, over 4 million Ukrainians starved to death. It must have been a horrible scene when you, you have like corpses on the street and, and emaciated people walking past. They couldn't remove the corpses because they didn't have the strength. And there were documented cases of cannibalism. That, mm. that campaign really made the, the Ukrainians hate everything Russian. Dan, you're really good at kind of seeing forward with how this plays out. Okay, Putin starts this, we're in Ukraine, it's affecting NATO, but obviously there's a lot of other players in here. I mean, first of all, on the intel side, we've got to get that right because we're going to be assessing 
China's capacity to fight Taiwan and their plans and intentions, and Taiwan's ability to resist China. And the key is to see the world through China's eyes. Taiwan has to make themselves such a strong target, or such a hard target, I should say, that it would be prohibitively costly to China in terms of spilled blood and treasure to launch a military invasion of Taiwan. It, we, we didn't do that for Ukraine. You know, the, the Biden administration said that there were two paths. One was diplomacy. The other was deterrence. Well, we didn't deter them. We threatened them with supporting an insurgency and economic sanctions. And that wasn't enough to deter Putin because, because Ukraine is an existential threat to Russia for the reasons we described. Taiwan is an existential threat to, to China. China wants Taiwan back. That's their policy. And so you really have to go pretty far to make sure that, that Taiwan is, is safe and secure. And I think there are a lot of questions for us on the intel collection side, but also the policy side. Do we remove our strategic ambiguity? Are we going to say that Taiwan is independent, that we will come to their assistance? President Biden said that way back six months ago, and then the administration kind of recalibrated and said we haven't changed from you know, the Taiwan Relations Act. But these are things we need to be talking about. I'm sure there is a lot of discussion behind the scenes, but eventually we're going to need to be public about what our policies are. And I think that's, that time's running out. How do you see how do you see things playing out with what Putin's doing? Dan was saying this is such a long game, you know, that we're going to be yes. doing. What do you what do you yes. see as the future? I mean, can you can you look yes. down a month, two months, years? What do you I, think? I agree that this war is not going to end anytime. Putin can't. Putin cannot return without having having the ability to de- declare true victory in some way. Zelensky has made it clear that he will not give up any territory. So, and we, we got a stalemate here and, uh, God forbid, and it's still possible that, that Putin actually overcomes resistance and, and occupies a larger chunk of all of, all of Ukraine. It's still not over because then you're going to have a, a, a guerrilla war going on because if, if uh, Ukrainians hated Russians and Russia before, they hate him even more because sons, daughters, and and brothers, sisters, mothers, fathers were ex were killed by by Russian soldiers, and so what that would look like would look like Afghanistan 2.0, except uh, much worse. And as as we we know, Afghanistan started the collapse of the Soviet Union because and that was a Soviet Union for crying out loud and, and Afghanistan was significantly weaker than Ukraine is. So there's no good outcome for Putin here, I I believe. What do you think, Dan? I totally agree. This is a loss for everybody. It's you I like to say Ukraine's winning they're not winning. They've lost too many innocent civilians, five and a half million people displaced from their homes. It's a humanitarian catastrophe and Putin started it and I am so deeply fearful that the darkest days are ahead of us on this one. Really? Yeah. So with dark days ahead, it makes us return and think of family. And we could keep keep talking about this forever. But I think people like us and people that are serving and and being of service to others and country and, and community, we have to acknowledge and think about the support we either have or don't have for families. So, Jack, what did your family know or think about what you did or didn't do <laughs> and oh, what kind of support that they lend you. <laughs> no, no, you're going all the way back. to. We're going back, Jack. My mother never, I, I told her 
uh, two consecutive lies. One uh, was I, when I stopped uh, doing the teaching at university, which I had started, I told her that I was going to be a diplomat. And then eventually when I was moved to Moscow, she came to visit me. And uh, well, that was that was a no-no, really. And so when, when I was launched to the United States, I told her that I rediscovered my love for chemistry and I joined space exploration in a highly secret place in Kazakhstan, interestingly enough. And and this became sort of everybody who used to be friends of mine or, or classmates, they all knew I was in Kazakhstan. And when I didn't return after the war came down, the, the rumor uh, came up that somebody brought that up that I just I perished in a rocket accident in Kazakhstan. And I got married in, in Germany and my wife actually knew where I was going and what I was doing. And she married me knowing that we would apart for about 10 years, if not longer, but, but any detail, she didn't know any details either. So there, now, now then I also had a family in the United States and uh, they didn't know until I told them, I, I told my wife at a time when, when the FBI had a bug in our kitchen and they were listening to my uh, confession. <laughs> and and my daughter and my son, I told them when they turned 18. But the danger was already uh, far gone, except when I was telling my wife, you know, the FBI was still investigating me. So, so they had my confession on tape. The compelling thing I love about Jack's story is he grew up an atheist with the, as he describes, the fairy tales of this guy called Jesus. And he actually became yeah. a uh, a Christian when the propaganda stopped and he could actually do his own research in life, which is fascinating. For myself, I was lucky enough to... When I got married, I was already in the Marine Corps. I just became brand new second lieutenant. My wife knew my passion for service, and she came along on that ride with me. And when the FBI came along, the same thing. I'd say probably for my wife, the greatest challenge is that I was very grateful for her um, being tolerant of. I did a lot of undercover work in the because I was illegal for me to approach. You know, our our targets, our GRU officers, is that's what I worked uh, in in our true name. And so I got a lot of late nights with not a lot of explanations. And as a matter of fact, I think this is my third or fourth wedding ring because I kept losing them. That was <laughs> that was stressful. On and my kids didn't even know who this strange guy was, especially during 9-11 New York, because I was never home. And so I was very grateful for her allowing me to do that. So I hunkered down and started doing what I wound up doing for the rest of my career. But I was very fortunate that I had a lot of support. And I, I left, I won't say the best, but I think Dan's story is the best. So I left that for last. Well, I don't know if it's the best. I could sit compelling. and listen to Jack. I can listen to Jack's story. Jack's story is so out of the ordinary to say yes, the least. It's bizarre. I mean, <laughs> it's extraordinary, real life, like cloak and dagger espionage. I mean, ugh. That's just incredible. But my story, you know, I my wife, my late wife, Kim, she was a disguise technician at CIA. So think Mission Impossible or the Americans, <laughs> all those cool disguises. We did better than that at CIA. And she was she was somebody, she owned a beauty salon, had gone to cosmetology school. And after 9-11, like so many people, she said, I want to go serve. And the beauty of the intelligence community is you know, we hire so many people from different backgrounds. We got doctors, lawyers, and and even, you know, beauticians. And so my wife was doing disguise and that's how we met. I was processing for disguise before going overseas and completely by chance I met her. I always tell people that the best thing I ever did at CIA was not recruit a source or some other, you know, whatever, stop a terrorist attack or whatever. No, it was meeting my wife. Honestly, the most consequential thing I ever did. 
And uh, she put up with a lot. You know, I did it unaccompanied, three years unaccompanied, a year in the Middle East and Iraq, a couple of years in South Asia and, you know, Russia. And it's not the kind of places that, that she was super excited about, or nor was she excited about the fact that I was away. My son was two. I was traveling overseas a lot. I was running the CIA's Near East Division. And my wife and I, she would always take me to the airport. You know, of course, the government pays for you to get a cab to the airport. But my wife would always take me so we could give each other one last hug and kiss at the airport tell each other we loved each other. And we always took my little boy with us because, you know, you're not going to leave him at home. He's two years old. So the kid would go home screaming like, I want to go to the airport. And he thought that's where I was for a week in the airport because mm. he didn't understand <clears throat> I was going places. And it kind of rips your heart out, you know, to leave behind your family. And we like to say, oh, we're, we're doing good things overseas and we're serving our country and, and our kids will understand. Well, yeah, you're going to miss a lot. And, and, you know, I'm like you guys, I, I'm proud of my service and regret every minute I spent away uh, from my family, especially when, you know, you realize like time is precious. My wife was diagnosed with cancer two months before I retired. And so my retirement, the first four years of it was her fighting a losing battle against cancer. And so sometimes those are the cards you get dealt. You know, you, you don't always have as much time as you wish you would have. And, the time we give up because we're serving our country and deploying overseas in harm's way, which is hard enough for our family members to go through. But then when you're actually done with that, there's no guarantee that you're going to have all the time that you thought you were going to have to spend, you know, your golden years together. So I always tell people, you know, every day you wake up next to your loved one or loved ones, we got kids, man, those are, those are days to cherish. Hey Dan, thanks for the for saying that I led an extraordinary life. I, I'm not the author of that life. I just stumbled through it. But I just want to I just wanted to add a, a couple of things because t tomorrow is my real birth. My daughter oh, could wow. write a book. Say uh, one of the title. My daddy has two birthdays. Uh, because <laughs> That's a good next title. Because <laughs> I was born in May, but my my passport chose November, and the reason we had to change that. If if I had I had Jack Barsky as per his birth certificate that we stole, I was born in 1944, and that had that 44 would would have been no good because the FBI would have helped me if I had kept that birth year would have would have helped me to commit a crime because I would would have cheated the social security system. So, yeah, all kinds of weird things. Wow, <laughs> that's I mean. Keep going, Rob, and ask him another question. <laughs> you know, so Jack's story, to, you know, it's it so funny. When I talked to Jack on, on my show, I, I met him on another podcast a number of years ago now, and I picked up his book, Deep Cover. I am not a spy book reader guy. It's not my thing. As you all know, when you live the life and you're doing this, you're like, yeah, whatever, some other book. But I picked this up because I wanted to chat with Jack. And it was so compelling because of these stories. The spy stuff was good. And, and speaking of that, and I, I say it all the time, I worked with individuals that were like Jack on the GRU side and he was so used at a high level and so highly trained because of what he did. It was compelling. I mean, he was, you know, when, when you work in this world, you have the residency officers that are the the symmetrical threat, the, the the guys that are in diplomatic cover and they're doing and they're high tempo, high ops. And then you have the deep cover people, the undercover folks that Jack was, and they're generally 
kind of passive. They're looking for opportunities to slowly weave their way. And they're really the break glass in case our, our diplomats get expelled guys. And yet Jack was utilized more like an operational high tempo guy inside the residency, which I found really compelling and really interesting. I want to make sure we get in Maureen Farmer's great question because I it made me really reflect and think, and I think each of us did on this as well. What surprised you most in your career? And so Jack... Since we're doing the pounding on Jack right now, Jack, what surprised you most in your career that you did not expect? That, that, that was right at the beginning. And after I accepted the offer for employment, I thought I was in and I would be treated very well, you know, mighty KTB. And, uh, you know, I, I had great hopes. I was still on probation. <laughs> <laughs> I, had two, I had two tests I had to pass. The first one was probably the toughest. So I, I arrive in Berlin with a with a suitcase and a, a briefcase and had my, my secret meeting with my new handler. And I expected him to, you know, show me to my new apartment, right? Well, he told me that your first task is to find yourself a place to live. <laughs> that was in East Germany at a time where there was a shortage of living space. And all living space was controlled by the government. There was no way to go to rent someplace. So I wound up, you know, out in the suburbs uh, in an outbuilding that had a bed, a chair, uh, running cold water and a cold stove. That was my home for about six months until my boss decided that, you know, I, I also had to pass the other test. It was a, a trip to Westboro. I didn't, that really wasn't a big deal, but I didn't realize that there were people who failed that test too, because, you know, you're in enemy territory and you, 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 you pee your pants. So <laughs> I imagine, you know, I quit university. I quit a phenomenal career and I could have failed either one of those tests and they would have sent me wherever. <laughs> Dan? I think what shocked me the most was the impact of our intelligence, that the intelligence could impact major foreign policy decisions, the United States relationship with another country, or could impact the security and safety of our citizens. And likewise, a failure on our part could do the same. You know, we have had our fair share of great successes. Many of them are still secret. We've also had failures like 9-11, but, but that's really what I really felt that, you know, we all shouldered a very significant responsibility there because, you know, it's, it's just so extraordinarily important for the president to have the best intelligence we can give him in order to make the most informed decisions. The level of importance of our intelligence really even was just a surprise for me being on the inside and just seeing it happen. Yeah, I'm going to add that to mine as well. May I, hey. may I add one more surprise? Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> because it's, it's really delicious. It has something to do with a vestige of cultural ignorance. So I went to college in the United States. I got a bachelor degree. And, you know, I was ambitious enough to, you know, just like, and it was good enough. I, I aced the whole thing. I had a 4.0 average. And so shortly after the last class, I was called into the dean's office. And the dean asked me, so what are you going to say for your graduation speech? I said, what? Well, you're the valedictorian. That, that was a big surprise. I had no idea that was coming. Okay. It's a, that was another great story from the book, too. It's like, here, here's Jack. 
he's supposed to be this deep cover guy be, <laughs> being, uh, you know, discreet with his with his persona and everything. Meanwhile, he's got to give the valedictorian speech because he got his degree. That was fantastic. <laughs> OK, that's a good one. <laughs> I do want to leave a, a final message um, for anyone that wants to share. It is Memorial Day. This is being released. Yeah, I tell you, most Americans don't know how good they have it. And that's typical for like people like me who who are first generation Americans. We have a background. We, we, we know. We know what we have here. And every time I go to the supermarket, it's I never fail to gawk at all the stuff in the store like 10 different 20 different uh, types of cereal and i mean the football field size uh, farmers market that we have in atlanta my god you know i remember you know in moscow the quote-unquote supermarkets the only thing that, that was always available was canned fish and and mineral water other than that it was a guessing game and this is such a rich country and the folks that are trying to change it to something else maybe after a european model or whatever are in my view are criminals that's a tough word but it's true because why why do you want to change something that works so well for 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 an entire country that makes no sense I mean, look at the progress and very rarely, if ever, do we move backwards from the and, and back into the problems we had before. We're continually moving forward. But the way that the genetics and biology of our brains work is we only keep seeing new problems. We forget where we came from. So I think days like Memorial Day are great times to remember where we came from. Dan? Yeah, I always you know think about Memorial Day, the bookend holidays for Memorial Day or Mother's Day and Father's Day. And you know that's the time when we remember the sacrifices families make, the ultimate sacrifice in, in too many cases. And my sons and I always take a moment and, and reflect on those whom we lost. But, you know, this year, we're also going to reflect on some of the sources we lost, those who, who stole secrets on our behalf to keep our soldiers safe. There was one source in particular, and I've, I've written a column about this, which will be out on Memorial Day. He saved a lot of soldiers in the war zone. And it was his intelligence reporting. He was a penetration of a terrorist network. He was killed. He wasn't killed because of any failure of tradecraft. He was killed because he was in a war zone. And our, our young case officer who was, was meeting him had to watch, actually, his body being washed and prepared for bur burial, according to the Islamic faith. It's counterfactual history, but I'll, I'll, I'll be thinking about him and, and all the, the lives he saved and, and how he gave an ultimate sacrifice, too, on our behalf. And, and a, as an intelligence officer, and I think all three of us can understand that especially well, because we know the value of intelligence. We lived it. I think it's important to keep that in mind as well on, on Memorial Day, this most sacred of holidays. Absolutely, Dan. Thank you for sharing that. Thank you all. My best friends, Jack. <laughs> <laughs> um, gentlemen, I want to thank you all for spending time today sharing with the audience your incredible insights and how intelligence really works, that it's behind the scenes of intelligence is us. It's real people doing real things. It's actually doing what Dan was saying, seeing the world through, through Russia's eyes, through China's eyes, through Putin's eyes, which is empathy. I think if people that know each one of us individually and collectively, we do what we did because we have massive empathy for those we love and care about, as well as everyone else that we touched. Because empathy doesn't mean you agree with someone. Empathy means you try to understand life from their optic and their perspective so you can communicate effectively, forge the trust you need to solve 
problems because ultimately that's what people that are in leadership positions do. They should be solving problems. And hopefully with this new knowledge you all have today about one, how to forge great connections and trust with others, understand a geopolitical paradigm a little bit more so you can make great, healthy choices, decisions for you and your families and, and honor Memorial Day for what it should be. And that is for those that sacrifice for the great things we have in life. With that, gentlemen, I want to thank you all. The Troika is signing off. <laughs> Bye-bye. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Forged by Trust. If you enjoyed the show, took away a few new tools, I hope you will leave a great review of the show to show your support. If you are interested in more information about how to forge your own trust-building strategies, please visit my website at www.peopleformula.com. You can also follow me on my social media sites included in the show notes. I'm looking forward to sharing my next Forge by Trust episode with you soon.